Today we'll be looking at Habakkuk 1, 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are certain events that divide time into before and after. The most obvious of those is the coming of Christ, right? We around the world divide time into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., the year of our Lord, a division of time. My dad's generation probably divides time with Pearl Harbor, before the attack on Pearl Harbor and then after the attack on Pearl Harbor. More recently, we may divide time with recent events like the Great Recession back in 2007 and 2008, thinking about the economy well before the recession and after the recession. We more recently will be dividing time with, well, we're saying this often, aren't we? Well, before the pandemic, when we used to do these sort of things, and now after the pandemic, when uh, things have changed radically. When we think of the Old Testament prophets, there is a dividing line, and it's helpful to look at this dividing line, a before, a during, and an after. And that dividing line is the exile of Judah to Babylon. And this took, uh, took place in successive waves. It took place beginning in 605 BC, and then the city was destroyed, the city of Jerusalem, in 587 or 86 BC. And so it took place in, in a number of waves, but that really divides the prophets. There were the prophets that were pre-exilic, that is, they were before the exile, and they were preparing for the exile. They were saying, folks, this is, this is coming. This is coming. This exile is coming. Uh, if you don't behave, this is what's going to happen, because God promised this back in Deuteronomy. And then there's some prophets that lived during the exile, and they were explaining the exile. They're saying, that's why this is happening, because of your sins. And then there were post-exilic, or prophets after the exile, and those prophets were trying to put things back together. Now what? 
what, what, what does it mean to be God's people now that we have been sent away and some of us, a remnant, has come back to the land? So we have before, during, and after. And, and if we think about the prophets that we've looked at lately, the last prophet we considered was Daniel. And Daniel lived so long that he was pre, during, and a little bit after. So he covers the whole whole period of before, during, and after the exile. Before that, we looked at Haggai. In Haggai, he was a post-exilic prophet, and he was stirring up the people saying, it's time to rebuild the temple, because they were back in the land, but they were building their own houses, but not the temple. And then before that, we looked at Malachi, who was also post-exilic, and he was even later than Haggai. By then, the temple had been rebuilt, the worship had been reestablished, but the people were bored. And he was saying, folks, wake up, wake up. Don't go back to how you were before. Now, when we look at Habakkuk, we find in Habakkuk we have a pre-exilic prophet. So he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, who was pre and also during. He was a contemporary of Zephaniah as well. Now, um, um, in the case of Habakkuk, we have a, a prophet here wrestling with the condition of God's people right before the exile. And so this is instructive. The exile was because of the sins of the people, and now we get something of a glimpse into what was going on in the people of God in those days. And so in verse 1, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. This word oracle is really the burden. And we find that this is a, a fairly common word in the prophets. You find it in Malachi and Nahum and Isaiah. The burden of Habakkuk the prophet that he saw. Now, uh, this word is, it shows up when, when the message that the, the prophet has to bring is a heavy message. That's why it's a burden. It's a burden to the prophet to bring this bad news to the people. But it's interesting here in Habakkuk, it's not so much bad news for the people. It's really a burden for Habakkuk. Now, there is some bad news for the people, but it's really a burden for Habakkuk. Because much of Habakkuk, unlike in other prophets, is his own wrestling, his own burden that he is bearing in the light of what's going on uh, with the people of God of his day and God's proposed solution to deal with that sin. Now, it's a, he has a rare title. Uh, most of the prophets are not called prophets in Scripture. They, they don't show up and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, the prophet. But here, Habakkuk is called the prophet. And so it may be that he had uh, something of an official position in, in the court, in, in Jerusalem, where he was recognized, oh, he's the, this is his official job, he is the prophet. In addition, um, he may have been attached to the temple in some way, because he composed a psalm in, ver in chapter 3, and that psalm, when we get to that, it says, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 of prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigionoth, which apparently was an instrument. And at the end of that, uh, end of the chapter, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. So there's some musical instructions to this, this psalm that he composed. So he may have been an official court prophet, and he may also have been attached to the temple where this would have been sung in the temple 
to the accompaniment of music. Now, um, we don't know anything about Habakkuk other than what we can infer from this book. But we can, with some confidence, identify the period in which he prophesied. He, as you can see in this, this text we read today, he's crying out about violence, about injustice. So this probably was not during the time of Josiah, who was a king who reformed things and brought people back to the law. But King Josiah died in 609 BC, so it probably wasn't during his reign, and he had a, 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 a decently long reign. And it was also before the Babylonians exiled the, the uh, Jews, which began in 605 BC. So it looks like we're looking at a, a pretty narrow piece of time here between 609 and 605 BC. Now, this, um, this burden, what is this burden? This burden is his wrestling with God, and it's wrestling with his own faith as well. And that's why this is a fascinating prophecy, because he's not really preaching to us as much as he is opening up his own struggle of faith in light of what he sees around him. And so I think that any, any believer will be able to identify with Habakkuk. As we look around and we see how things are on the ground and we, we ask questions and we struggle with what God is doing or not doing as we think he should be or shouldn't be. And here Habakkuk in this section, in 1 to 3 or 2 to, I'm sorry, 2 to 11, he boldly asks two questions. And if you have read the Psalms, you will know these two questions well, because these are two questions that the psalmists boldly ask of God. And they are these, how long and why? How long and why? Any, any believers here that have ever asked those questions? Yes. The, those are questions that are common in the psalms because those are questions that are common among believers. And in verse 2, he asked how long? How long would he have to cry out without receiving an answer from God? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? So he accuses God of not hearing him. And then he says, or cry to you violence and you will not say. So he was saying, I'm crying out to you personally. And it looks like he's been doing this for some time. And he says, you are not listening to me. And then... He says, I cry out violence. And that's the summary of his description of the people of God of his day. The, the one word summary of, of the Jews of that day, of Judah of that day, of Jerusalem of that day is violence. And he will spell that out more. But he says violence. And I cry out violence. And you will not save. You won't save me. You won't save your nation from this violence. He cried out about the prevailing violence of his day. Now, when we read this, and when we read the Psalms, we might find such prayers to be not only bold, but, but possibly even irreverent. They, they seem to go a little far, don't they? To, to say to God, you're not listening to me. That, that's quite a bold prayer, and it indicates the intimacy of his relationship with God, that he would have the audacity to speak with God that way. And, and this, is, this is challenging to me in my prayer life. Um, not that this is the, the, the only kind of prayer we should offer, but I wonder, do, do I pray as if God really exists? 
I, I heard a, a pastor tell a story that really struck me because he said he has a he was talking about his son and his son I don't remember the the disease his son had but but it, it was a terrible disease and they were getting all the medical care that that he he needed and and they had a breakthrough and it looked like it was in remission whatever it was and they actually had a party and they were celebrating the remission and during the party during the party he got a call from the physician and said oh um, sorry we just discovered some things in the tests. Actually, he, he's not in remission after all. And so the dad, this pastor, he said he went into the, the bathroom and he had it out with God. And he told God what he thought of him. He told God what he thought of his care of his son. And he, he really just, just told him off. And then said, and God, he, he just had it out with God. And then he realized, he said after that, he said, after he, he said those things to God that were so so bold, maybe even irreverent, he said, then I realized that's the first time I ever spoke to God as if he really existed. I thought, wow, how about that? Do I speak to God as, he really, as if he really exists, or do I just go through my prayer routine? The, the virtue of this kind of a prayer is the honesty of it and the recognizing that God really does exist. And from Bakke's perspective, he exists, but he wasn't paying attention. And so Habakkuk boldly said, God, you are not listening to me. That's the, that's the how long question. And then the why question. He said, why, in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity while you idly look wrong. And I want you to pay attention to the sight verbs in this chapter and in the next. Why do you make me see iniquity while you idly look at wrong? So the image is, is God's kind of pushing his face and making him see iniquity while God just kind of sits back and idly looks at what's going on. And then he used three couplets to describe the situation. He, he refers to iniquity and wrong in verse 3, and then he refers to destruction and violence, and then he refers to strife and contention. So this is his, his description. He says, God, you are pushing my face into these things while you just sit back and you idly look on. And he says that the law of God was paralyzed. Interesting. What happens when a limb is paralyzed? It's there, but it doesn't work. It's present, but it's not doing anything. It's not active. He says, your law is here, Lord. And by the way, Josiah's reform was getting back to the law. So the, the law was there, but it was, it was not doing anything. It was as if it weren't there. So God is acting in Habakkuk's mind as if he weren't there. His law is acting as if it weren't there. And so he says, justice never goes out. Verse 4, justice never goes forth. And then he says, the wicked are more numerous than the righteous. So there is a, there is a remnant of righteous people in Judea or Judah. And he says, the wicked outnumber them. They're surrounded by the wicked. And then he says, actually, justice does go forth. First he says, it doesn't go forth. Then he says, so justice goes forth. But when it goes forth, it's perverted. So justice has become injustice. That's the situation in our nation. Now, when we look at the description of this society, we may 
easily and naturally apply it to our own society, or we may easily apply it to others' societies, depending on whether we're kind of in the mood to, to censure our own society or we're looking at other societies as worse than our own. So it's easy for us to take these and apply them to different societies. And these comparisons are apt. These are apt comparisons, and, and that, that's not wrong that we should do that. Um, and uh, it does show us, though, that there's nothing new under the sun. It does show us that as we look around and we see violence and strife and corruption and contention, that, that none of these things are new in society. But you see, there is, a, there is an aspect in which, though, that comparison of the situation in Judah and, let's say, our nation or another nation on earth is not quite right because Judah is not just any nation. Judah is the people of God. Judah is the remnant that was spared from the Assyrians. Judah is, is God's chosen people in the earth. And so, so the situation there, we may say that the violence in our nation, the corruption in our nation is, is terrible, but their situation was, was much more serious because they were the people of God on the face of the earth. That was who they were. And so for these things to be characteristic of them was not only lamentable, but it was, it was truly tragic because this was the condition of those who had been called by God out from the nations to be his holy people. So a, a more apt comparison would be to compare this with corruption and violence and vice in the church. You see, if we're going to apply this to our situation, we ought to ask, well, what is the condition of the people of God? And, and if we find these things among the people of God, we see how truly tragic that is. You see, our job is not to scold the world for being so bad. What do we expect? That, that's what we find from the beginning, as soon as sin entered the world. The, the world has gone astray. That, that, that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't delight us, of course. And we should lament the fact. But our job is not to scold the world for being so bad, but to make sure, if we call ourselves the people of God, that we are not the same as the world. You see, our job is not to moralize the world by going to the world and saying, you shape up and behave better, but to evangelize the world by telling the world of a savior of sinners. And if we're going to tell the world of a savior of sinners, we need to demonstrate in our lives that we have been saved from sin. You see, it's a contradiction if we go out and say, Jesus saves, but if he hasn't saved us from corruption and vice and violence, our message falls flat. And that's the challenge here of, of this description of, of God's people. So we ought to apply this not to that bad nation out there, but to, to shine the searchlight on ourselves and say, what is, what is our, our character as the people of God today? Now, um, this is, you'll, you'll probably find in your Bibles that there are, there are ch uh, paragraph headings. So verses 2 to 4 are called Habakkuk's complaint, which I think is very apt. And then verses 5 to 11, we have the Lord's answer. 
Well, we have to in intuit that, we have to infer that, but I think it's pretty clear that that's a good description because there is a change of voice here. Because it says here, look, here again, once again, the, uh, the sight verbs, look among the nations and see. And these are in, in plural. That's not obvious in English, but these are plural commands. So it's not just Habakkuk look, but this is a command of, for the people of God to take a look and to see. And God said, take a look at what I'm going to do among the nations. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. So he's going to do something that is wonderful, astounding, and very difficult to believe. And then he said he would raise up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans. Now, he doesn't say why. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans. But we can intuit from the way this is structured, but also we know from history why he raised up the Chaldeans. He raised up the Chaldeans to punish the Jews, to discipline the Jews and other nations as well. And he was um, raising up this, this, this group that had really kind of come out of nowhere. The, the, they weren't big players on the scene. They, the Chaldeans, were a rising superpower that had come out of nowhere, and they had quickly conquered Babylon, and then they, they took on Babylon's name. So when we think about the Chaldeans, we also can call them the Babylonians, because they conquered Babylon, and they, they were associated with Babylon. So Chaldeans and Babylonians... They also conquered Assyria, they conquered Syria, they conquered Egypt, and they conquered the Promised Land. So they had this, this amazing, fast rise from obscurity to being the reigning superpower. And as quickly as they rose, so quickly they fell as well, as we saw in Daniel. Now, um, it's clear that God was not ignorant of the character of the Chaldeans. Because he goes on in verses 5 to 11, and he describes the Chaldeans. And he describes them with some 20 different descriptors. And just to summarize, he calls them bitter, hasty, greedy, dreaded, fearsome, a law to themselves, swift, fierce, proud, devouring, violent, scoffers, undaunted, guilty, worshiping their own might. So he knew what the Chaldeans were like, and history bears this out. This is, this is how they were. Now, this, this response, he had already said, he said, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe. And this is unbelievable that God would do this. He knows what these Chaldeans are like, and he says, I am going to raise up these people, these Chaldeans. And this looks like exactly the wrong response, doesn't it? This looks like going in the wrong direction. So what, is, what does Habakkuk cry out? Violence! And so what's God's answer? More violence. God, the law is paralyzed. Everybody does what they want. The Chaldeans, they are a law unto themselves. And so this seems to be going in exactly the wrong direction. Now God's hearing, but Habakkuk may wish that he hadn't, because this seems to be 
doing the wrong thing, and we'll see Habakkuk's response next week. But before we get to that, there is a sense in which this is actually really appropriate response on God's, God's part. We might call it poetic justice. Because what God is doing is showing Judah the end of its own ways. The end of its own ways. So, so Judah. Judah was violent. And so by raising up the Chaldeans, God is in essence saying, Oh, you want violence? I'll show you violence. Judah was being lawless. And, and by raising up the Chaldeans, God, in essence, was saying, oh, you want, you want to be lawless? I will show you lawlessness. Judah was practicing might makes right. And, and so, in essence, God is saying, you want to go down that road? You want to, you want to live by this, this doctrine of might makes right? I will show you might makes right. If this is the way you want to go, I'll show you the end where you are going. You want to be autonomous? I'll show you autonomy. You want to be a law to yourselves? I will show you a law to themselves. Now, we will get to Habakkuk's response. We're kind of left uh, with this, this section. We're kind of left, as Habakkuk was, in shock. And we will see what he responds next week. But we should notice at this point that, kind of surprisingly, one of the verses from, from this chapter, from this section we read, is one of the two verses from Habakkuk that shows up in the New Testament. And so we have a real clear link here with the New Testament. And it shows up in Acts chapter 13. I read this earlier today in the, uh, the New Testament reading. And it shows up in Acts 13, 41. And the context is this. Paul was preaching to Jews in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. And he was preaching a message about God's son who had become a human, who had suffered, who had died, and whom God had raised from the dead. And he was preaching this message. And then after preaching this message, he quoted Habakkuk. And he said, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And what's he referring to here? He's referring to the work of Christ. And he's saying this is a wonderful, astounding, and hard-to-believe work. And he says, be careful not to miss it. You see, we might, we're used to, if we've been around the church for a while, we're used to this story, aren't we? But, but, but sometimes it's helpful to take a step back and to listen to what we are saying. To say that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth and he exists eternally in three persons. And one of those persons became one of us and that he lived on earth a perfect life for some 30 years. And then the Romans crucified him on the cross with the complicity of the Jews. And then three days later, God the Father raised him from the dead and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's coming again to judge all of the universe. Now, if you step back and you listen to that, 
you might say, come on, you're making that up. That, that's not the kind of thing God would do. If there is a God, he wouldn't do something like that, would he? If he, would, if he wants to put things right, if he's a God, wouldn't he come and just execute justice? Would a God who exists and who's holy and righteous come and die for his people? That, you you got to be making that up. That, that, that's too hard to believe. And so Paul says, yeah, I get that. And he quotes this to say, yeah, this is, this is, a, this is an amazing work. This is a surprising work. This is not what you were expecting, Jews. When your Messiah came, you were expecting something very, very different from this. But don't miss him. Don't miss him. Just because he's different from the work that you expected him to do. He's not David riding in with a conquering army. He is Jesus, the son of David, conquering by being crucified and by being raised from the dead on the third day. Don't miss it. Just because it's unexpected to you, just because it's wonderful, just because it's astounding, don't miss it. God wouldn't do something like that? Oh, yes, he would. And in fact, he did. Let's pray. Our God, we're, we're thankfully, we're used to the gospel. And it doesn't sound so strange to us. We who are believers have staked our lives on it. We, we sing about it. We rejoice in it daily. But we step back and recognize that it's an astounding message, a wonderful message. And it's hard to believe as well that, that you, our God, would become one of us and give your human life for ours. Lord, this message is, is always astounding, it's always wonderful, and it's probably always hard to believe. But we pray, O oh God, that you would always give us faith to believe it, and always faith to preach it to others, and that you would be gracious to us, to use us, that others might believe this wonderful, astounding, and hard-to-believe message. And I pray for us as well as we look around us, as we look at the church, as we look at the nation, and as we get stressed about the vices we see in our midst. Oh God, I pray that you would hear us, that you would act, that you would save your church from all of its corruption because we know that Christ loves the church and we know that he gave himself to purify us and to iron out every wrinkle and to bleach out every spot. And we pray that you would do that so that we might be a glory to Christ in this world and that our lives might show people what it means to be chosen and redeemed by Jesus. We pray in his name.